If the Bible's supposed to be historically accurate, what about the books that are in some Bibles that are in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Are they historically reliable? And why aren't they in all the Bibles? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions as we look at lesson number five of our Truth and History series. In this one, we're going to talk about the Apocrypha. I'm going to give you an overview, and then we'll look at the historical anchors in these books, or actually, in this case, a lack thereof. Here's our plan today. In the last lesson, we looked at how the Old Testament is tied to real history and real geography. This week, we're going to look at the Apocrypha to see if it meets the same test. We're going to, first of all, look at what it is. I know some of you are sit, sort of sitting there thinking, what, what is she even talking about? That's the books that are in between the Old Testament and New Testament in some Bibles, but I'll explain it in more detail. We'll look at how it came about, and we'll also see, and this is where it gets really interesting, it's actually part of a much bigger story that includes the history of the Septuagint. Again, another big term, but it's so much more than a scholarly term because this is the Bible that Jesus and Paul used. I think you'll find it very interesting how that came about. So what is the Apocrypha? Now, in addition to the books of the Old Testament, in Catholic Bibles, you will find 14 additional books. Let me read the titles to you. The Apocrypha consists of 1st and 2nd Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, Song of the Three Children, the Story of Susanna, the Idol Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manassas, and 1st and 2nd Maccabees. The term Apocrypha itself means either hidden or some translators say it means false, but hidden is, is much more accurate. These are also called deuterio-canonical, and that means a second canon. Now that is to distinguish them from the first canon of biblical text. What that just means is these are of lesser value, and some of you are probably asking, well, what are canonical texts? Well, we're going to get to that to the, in the next lesson. But let's look at now how did this series of books come about. It's not a simple story. It's really a very fascinating one. And it's a combination of history, of language, and really overall of God's sovereignty as he worked during this time. Now, first let's get into the history because that's what we're basing a lot of this on. Where we left off in Jewish history, the Jews are back in the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, but they are under foreign domination for most of the time, except right at the end of this period, when we'll see that's the time that the Maccabees take over. However, at this time, when they come back into the land, the writing of the Old Testament closes. The last books are Chronicles, goes through the history till the end, and then we have the very last prophets in the Bible. We have Nehemiah, we have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And this is the end. Malachi is the, is the very last one. This is around 400 BC. Those writings and those only are what have been considered the Old Testament writings throughout all of Jewish history. I'll go into a little more detail on that later, but it's important to understand that the Jewish people do not consider any other writings to be scriptures from God from then on. Now, 
here's what's what's important is all of these books with the exception of a few parts of Daniel and a, a few other small areas these were all written in Hebrew however here's the problem at that time after the two captivities of the the people nobody spoke Hebrew anymore everybody spoke Aramaic Aramaic was the language of the conquering people. The Assyrians and the Babylonians both spoke Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is kind of an interesting language. If you look at the letters of Aramaic, they look very similar to the Hebrew letters. They have a very similar, they have, well, they have the same alphabet. They're of the same linguistic group, but it's just it, in sort of the same way as English is in the same linguistic group as Spanish. They come from the same family, they have similar letters, but they're completely different languages. Now, Aramaic was what people spoke in their day-to-day -day activities, in their culture, in their commerce, because this was the language of the conquering people, so basically it's what people spoke. Even though they're back in the land, they're still under foreign control. Now, here is the challenge. They spoke Aramaic. But the Bible, their Old Testament, was in Hebrew. It was not in the language that they spoke. You can imagine if you were someone living in the United States today, if you only spoke English and your Bible was totally in Spanish, you wouldn't really have access to it. Now, they had paraphrases. They had some commentaries in the Talmud and the Targums, which were in Aramaic, but they didn't have the scripture themselves. Now, by the way, this is the language, if, if you're wondering what Aramaic sounds like, if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, that was still the language that people in Palestine spoke when Jesus lived. So when he was speaking in the movie, he was speaking Aramaic. Now let's pan out to world history and see how everything changed. Persia conquered Babylon and Cyrus, remember, and, and you can easily be forgiven if you don't, Cyrus was the Persian ruler who allowed the Jews to go back into the land. The Persian uh, Empire lasted until the time of Alexander. Now, just before the time of Alexander the Great was the Golden Age of Greece. And even though people spoke Aramaic as their everyday language, Greek was really the language of culture. It was, of course, the language of the Greek people. When Alexander conquers the entire world, he comes up with a new variation of Greek, the Koine Greek, or the common Greek, which is what he had all of his army speak, and he made that the language of his empire. It seems like, you know, whenever somebody comes in and conquers, you've got to speak my language. So at the time of Alexander, the entire Mediterranean world, the entire Mediterranean basin, everybody learned Greek. So this becomes the language that people speak. Now, after Alexander dies, his kingdom is then split into four parts. Back to the Jews. Jewish people were scattered all over Alexander's former empire because of the different deportations and just because the world had become much more mobile at that time. Koine Greek was then the language of all of this area. Greece was greatly admired and most people, even though they spoke Aramaic at home, Greek was very important to them. But as you know, if you've ever looked at Greek manuscripts of the Bible and then Hebrew, you know that 
the alphabet used in the Greek language is totally different than that of Hebrew and Aramaic. And so what that actually did is that actually removed the Jewish people one more language away from their scriptures, which were written in Hebrew and were not translated for the majority of people at this time because they, they didn't speak Hebrew. Now, just a little parenthesis here. The Hebrew scriptures were passed on during this time in what is known as the Masoretic text. This, there was a group of scribes who very, very carefully would copy the manuscripts and copy the manuscripts. And they, they were extremely careful and precise in how they, they did it. This is the manuscript that has come down to us. And that is the Masoretic text. That's what is in a translation of that is what is in our Bibles today. And the priests had that throughout the whole Old Testament times. Well, that was great for the priests. But again, what about the common people? The Septuagint is the answer. Now, really interesting history on this. Okay, Alexander's conquered the whole known world. He dies very young. His empire is split into four parts. One of those parts is the whole area around Egypt. It's given to a general Ptolemy. Now, he had a son named Ptolemy Philadelphus, and by all accounts, he was really a good guy. Um, the, the empire, the Egyptian empire at that time was very peaceful, was very good to all its inhabitants. There were lots of Jews in Ptolemaic Egypt, and for some reason or another, Ptolemy Philadelphus decides that he's going to oversee a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now there are lots of apocryphal stories about it. One of them, let, let me read it to you, and, and this is what it says. Probably didn't happen like this, but anyway, the legend is that King Ptolemy once gathered 72 elders. He placed them in 72 chambers, each of them in a separate one, without revealing to them why they were summoned. He entered each one's room and said, write for me the Torah of Moses, your teacher. God put it in the heart of each one to translate identically as all the others did. Well, it probably didn't happen that way. But we do know that about that time, a translation of the Torah into Greek was made public and, and people started using it. That was the beginning of the Septuagint. And sometimes you'll just see um, in Roman numerals and LXX, that is the Koine Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Now, then it gets really kind of muddy in history. Scholars don't know exactly when, where. Um, there were different translations. It was actually a very loose, you might say really popular translation. There was no one set text of it like there is with the Masoretic version. And so you will find variations. It's, it's kind of interesting when you go jump all the way ahead to New Testament times. Like I said, this is the Bible that Jesus used. This is the Bible that Paul used. And that's why sometimes when you will read something that either Jesus or Paul said, and they're quoting the Old Testament, you'll go, that doesn't sound quite right. That's just a little bit off. Well, that's because they're quoting out of the Septuagint. And um, <laughs> this might be my just my application of it. But I've always thought that that says to me, don't get really uptight about the translations. In many ways, the Septuagint was kind of like the Living Bible or the Message translation of the day. It wasn't the most entirely accurate. But it was good enough. And it was good enough that Jesus and Paul used it and 
God allowed it to be used and to translate the message to us. So so don't, don't get hung up on translations. But anyway, you've got the Septuagint. Now somewhere along the line, for the next several hundred years before the New Testament times, a number of other books were added to this collection. And that's where the Apocrypha came along. And many of the books, we have no idea how they came along. They are obviously not written in many cases by any author that we can actually go back to and historically verify. We don't know how a lot of them came to be, but this collection of books became sort of a group and it was attached to the Septuagint. Now keep very, very clear though the difference between the Septuagint and the Apocrypha. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Apocrypha is a collection of books that were written about the same time that were attached to it in church history, but they are very, very different. So now back to just the Apocrypha itself. Why are these books, and we're just going to look at these, obviously the Septuagint, the Old Testament, that is accepted and that is biblical and that is historically correct because it's basically our Old Testament. But these extra books, what what are they? Why are they not accepted? Well, they're a real mixed bag of things. Some are additions to Old Testament books, and I'm going to be giving you specific examples in a few minutes. Some are really fanciful stories. Some are actually very useful history, but in many of them, the history is incorrect. There's very mystical, fanciful stories and really bad theology. One of the things I mentioned it briefly earlier, we don't know who wrote most of them. And so, well, in fact, all of them, we're, we're really not sure who wrote them. And so this in and of itself causes us to be hesitant about considering them scripture. Some additional reasons why they have never been considered scripture before I give you specific examples. First of all, they were never quoted by Jesus or the apostles or any writers in the New Testament. Many of the books of the Old Testament are quoted extensively by Jesus and by the writers of the New Testament, but the Apocrypha is never quoted by them. Also, it was rejected by the Jewish community. The ancient Jews, they rejected the Apocrypha as scripture. They also would not include it in their collections of the scriptures. Josephus, the Jewish historian who writes extensively about Jewish history, he explicitly rejected the Apocrypha and listed the Hebrew canon as basically what we have today. Now, he had a different number of books because um, he combined First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, but it's the same content exactly as we have today. Now, also, the Jewish community acknowledged, and it's written in several places, I have a quote in just a few minutes, that the prophetic gifts ceased in Israel before the Apocrypha was written. Also, they are not, the content of them is not consistent with the rest of the Old Testament. And one of the really important things, unlike the scriptures of many of the other religions that we talked about earlier, they're very inconsistent with each other. And in in fact, in Buddhism and Hinduism, they they acknowledge it totally that different writers came up with different ideas and different interpretations and they don't agree with each other, but that doesn't matter because that's the way they do it. 
with the Bible, it's very important that the Bible be internally consistent. And so uh, the Apocrypha obviously is not. So let's look at some specific examples. First of all, there are a number of additions to biblical stories. Here's one from the book called The Rest of the Book of Esther. And in it, it says, then Mordecai said, God hath done these things. Now you might think, well, what's so wrong with that? Well, it's it's obviously an addition to the book. And one of the things that's kind of, well, it's not really funny, but it's kind of interesting on it is that this was most likely a scribal addition because one, one thing that people have always had a problem with with the book of Esther is it does not contain the name of God. Now, God's actions in it are very clear, but it doesn't actually say God did thus and so. And so some scribe decided, we need to make this a little clearer. So he adds where Mordecai says, God hath done these things. It's not considered canonical. It's considered an addition, but that's one of the things. Now, there are a lot of historical errors, but before I talk about some of the errors, it's very important to understand that one of the great benefits of the Apocrypha are in the book of the Maccabees. The Maccabees did live, we have a lot of history about them, and this is this is one of the best books that we have on them. They were the Jewish rebels who they fought against when um, Alexander's empire was split up. Uh, like I said, Ptolemy got Egypt, and he was really nice to the Jews, and he translated the Septuagint, but really mean guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he was the general who got Judea, and he was the really nasty guy um, and his son was, was really mean also. They're the ones that offered the pig on the altar of Jerusalem. And a lot of people know this story on how the Maccabees came in and conquered them. And um, they only had enough oil to last, I think it was a day or so in the temple. And it burned for seven days. And that's how we get Hanukkah. And so um, this is a, a true historical thing that happened. They founded what is known as the Hasmonean royal dynasty. And they, uh, the Jews, the Jewish nation, was independent from about 165 uh, B.C. to 63 B.C. when there was a series of battles and all of that, and they were taken over by Rome. They were, uh, during this time, the Maccabees actually uh, won back almost all of Solomon's old empire. And for this very brief period of time, approximately 100 years, the Jews were free. And then after that, not until 1949, but a, a very... Uh, a very important time. Now, one more little tidbit, and then we'll leave some of the history on this. One of the last of the Hasmonean dynasty of the Maccabees was a woman named Mariamne, and she married a man named Herod, who becomes Herod the Great, and he is the Herod, of course, of the time of the birth of Christ. Now, he later had her killed, and he wasn't a very nice guy, and as we know, he was the one who had the infants killed when the wise men came back, and he was afraid that a king had been born, and he'll, so he went to Bethlehem and had the infants killed. But now, back to the Apocrypha itself, even though very good history in it about the Maccabees, there was a no, there are a number of other things that are just historically incorrect. In the book of Judith, it talks about in the twelfth year of his reign, Nabuchodonosor, king of the Assyrians, reigned in Nineveh, the great city, and fought against Arphaxad and overcame him. They are talking about Nebuchadnezzar, but he wasn't Assyrian. He was Babylonian. 
And that's a very egregious error. You don't say someone's a king of one country when they're of another one. And again, this is a huge contrast between true biblical history, which is correct overall and verified outside of the biblical record. Moving right along, another reason that we don't accept the Apocrypha is it condones the use of magic. Let me read a passage out of Tobit where it said, Then the angel said to him, Take out the entrails of this fish and lay up his heart and his gall and his liver for thee, for these are necessary for useful medicines. Then Tobus asked the angel and said to him, I beseech thee, brother Azarias, tell me what remedies these things are good for, which thou hast bid me keep the fish. And the angel answering said, Put a piece of its heart among the coals, the smoke there will drive away all kinds of devils. Now, this, in, and that's the end of the quote, the Bible never condones this kind of thing. Magic, the use of spells, the use of consulting the entrails of animals, that was all common in the mystical and magical rites of some of the nations of that time, but it is never condoned in the Bible. Again, the prophecy or lack thereof is very important in this. For example, in Baruch, it talks about that the people, when they are in the Babylonian captivity, that they will be there for perhaps seven generations. It says even to seven generations. Well, a biblical generation was between 40 to 100 years. So he was basically saying they're going to be in captivity from 280 to 700 years. Historically, it was not true. In the canonical scriptures, of course, in Jeremiah and other books, it talks about the captivity lasting 70 years, which it did. And that's just, again, one example of where supposed prophecy simply didn't didn't happen and so we we don't consider these true books also there is no messianic prophecy in them the prophecies that they have are never cited as being authoritative by anyone after they were written and then it's kind of interesting in Maccabees it does say there was great distress at that time in Israel, such as had not been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. And what many commentators have said is that because, again, Maccabees is considered a relatively correct historical book, that there was a great recognition during this time that the prophetic gifts had ceased when Malachi was written and that there were no more prophets. Also, some of the false theology that's in them. It teaches, for example, in Tobit, that the forgiveness of sins is by human effort and primarily by giving money. It says, For alms deliver from all sin, sin and from death, and will not suffer the soul to go into darkness. For alms delivereth from death, and that same purgeth away sins, and maketh to find mercy and life everlasting. Well, obviously the idea that money is what gives you everlasting life is not in agreement with the rest of the Bible. Also, in Maccabees, it talks about money as an offering for the sins of the dead, where it says, In making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for a sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection.
This obviously is an example of why we can look at Maccabees as a book useful for history, but not for theology. Well, what about the Catholic Church? Why do they have those books in their Bible? Well, that's that's a good question. And one thing that I think is very interesting and very important to understand is that the books of the Apocrypha have not been universally accepted by the Church, and throughout much of their history, they were not looked at as canonical as words from God. Very, very important. Again, we're going to go back to around the 300s. Now, at this time, the Christian church had become the legal church in the empire. This is actually the late 300s. The church was growing. Much of what we would call the apparatus of the church was in place. There were the orders of the monks, and there was a pope, and there were different things. And the the situation regarding the Bible is that, remember, I told you how earlier this was several hundred years, well, about 500 years ago now, the Bible was translated into Greek because most of the people spoke Greek, and so they needed it in their own language. Well, as empires come and empires go, Greece had fallen, and now Rome was the big power. So like every other emperor, every other conquering nation, the language now that people spoke was Latin. That was the language of the Roman conquerors. So here you have most people speaking Latin, but again, the Bible is still in Greek. So it was recognized that there needed to be a translation into Latin for the Bible. Now, a really kind of interesting thing happened. A gentleman named Jerome, who happened to be a brilliant scholar, approached the Pope at the time and said, I would like to do a translation of the Bible into the language of the people. He was given permission, and there's all kinds of history surrounding this, and it took him quite a while. It took him, oh, let's see, about over 20 years, and he translated the Bible into the language of the common people, which was Latin. This came to be known as the Latin Vulgate Bible. Now, again, there's this big old word, Latin Vulgate Bible, and, and we think, oh, that was like some big deal scholarly thing. Well, it really was Again, vulgate, the term, it comes from the Latin term vulgar. The meaning of the term vulgar at that time means common. Jerome wanted to translate the Bible into the common speech of the people. Now, when he did this, and he really was a brilliant scholar, he went back to the Hebrew text. He also looked at the Septuagint, and he looked at the Apocrypha, and he strongly, strongly was against including the Apocrypha in his translation because he said it's not any good. It's inferior. It's obviously not canonical. It's not what should be in our Bible. But because of all kinds of political things and pressure and everything else, he included it in his translation. Now, it was not accepted by many of the scholars of the church throughout most of church history, and it was only officially made part of the Catholic Bible in 1546 at the Council of Trent. Now this was over a millennium and a half after the books were written and it was obviously done as a counter reaction to the Protestant Reformation and as you can tell many of the doctrines that the Protestant Church does not hold to, the giving of alms for the dead, prayers for the dead, some of these things, the Protestant Reformation was against, the Catholic church practiced them, and they could not find verification for them, authorization for
for them in the canonical books of the Bible, so they go back to the Apocrypha. So that's that's where that all that came about. The books were rejected by many of the church fathers, and some of the reformers, even though they would read them, they said these are inferior. Some of them said they're okay to read for devotional purposes. My recommendation is don't. <laughs> they're really, they, they are not something that, other than just for history, that are useful to read. Now, why does it matter? Um, here's some application. Because what you read and trust in has an impact on your life. Read the Bible without the Apocrypha. You want to know the canonical books of the Bible, the standard books of the Bible, so well that when you read something false, it's very easily apparent. No matter how spiritual something sounds, always check it out with the Bible, with the accepted books of the Old and New Testament. Now, in our next lesson, we're going to look at the New Testament. Now, there were not only these non-canonical books in the Apocrypha, in the ones in between, but recently there have been some, and I'm talking within the 20th century, there have been some books that have appeared that are really false teachings for the New Testament. I'm talking about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas. Now, these books, some people would say, they should be in the New Testament like the Apocrypha should be in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you why that isn't true. Now, I realize I keep using that term canonical, and it's probably driving some of you crazy, and you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, hold on, two lessons, um, well, actually, just one more after this, after we have the lesson on the New Testament, then I'm going to do one on how the Bible was put together. Why do we have the books that we have? Why do we have the books that we consider canonical? What was the process? What did people go into to determine all that? But that's coming soon. Well, that's all for now. Please check out the notes, additional information on www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.